Thank you for the fact that you reign on high. You always have and you always will. But we're thankful even more that your reign is a loving reign. We're thankful that you have gained the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ and that the accuser of the church has been thrown down so that not one of our sins is held against us at the throne, that you look upon us as your children, beloved and perfect and righteous, not because we are, but because you have declared us to be righteous through the, through the blood of Jesus and through the perfect life that he lived. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live in the freedom of that conquest and that victory and trust that even in the darkness of our times, the darkness of the circumstances of life, to trust that you love us and that you reign. And we pray that you would open our eyes today, that you would refresh us, restore us, revive in us a renewed confidence in your goodness and your love and your power, and that you would free us from many of the lies that keep us tangled um, and enslaved. And so I just pray this in the name of Jesus, our mighty King, who died for us and rose again on the third day. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and take your seats. And at this time, the children's church is dismissed. And if you're new with us, then you can um, send your kids up here to the left, and they will be escorted out to their classroom. And uh, while they're leaving, if you wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm actually going to be in a couple of different places, but that's where I'm going to primarily hover and center around. Um, just to kind of give you a, an, an indication of where we have been, uh, if you've been with us, we've been going through um, kind of a parallel of the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15, and um, many of our small groups are going through and are continuing to go through the, the little book called The Prodigal God, which is an amazing story about God's love for two erring sons. Um, and we've been kind of tracking along with that. And I finished last week where the book finished off, which is with a, a great feast that's yet future when God, um, the Son, um, in physical form, joins us at a great feast table, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So this... Actually, message and next week's message is what I like to think of an appendices, kind of um, reflections after um, the story of the prodigal son. Uh, because when we got finished, there's a, a question that I had, and I, and I think it's a question that's important for us to th think about as a, as a family, as a church family. And that is the question of, this thing worked perfectly when we checked it before. We've got demons in our system, I'm telling you. It's one of those times I want to be Pentecostal and put my hands on the amplifiers. Cast out the demons. But the question is this. You have two sons in the prodigal son story. One, one, is, um, one is deluded by his own fallen self-righteousness, and the other is given to the, pla the place of, or the path of sinful pleasure. Now, for sake of argument, let's say that both sons repent of their different evils, and they come back into the feast, and they come back to the father and back into the same family. The question is, how, how does the younger brother and older brother live together in the same family without killing each other? Because, I think, based upon what we know about humanity and sometimes how slow change is, that the older brother just didn't change all of a sudden. He probably, if, again, if they both had repented, probably would have struggled with an older brother mentality. It would have been his sin point um, in the family. Um, I, 
From what I understand and know about human nature and even how Christians change slowly, I think that would probably be his struggle in the family. And I think it'd be naive to think that the younger brother who has lived a sordid past, who's, who's acquired a lot of emotional and moral baggage and memories and so forth, that there'd be a lot of stuff that he would drag back into the family that he wouldn't have changed overnight, but he'd have to work through some of the stuff, some of the mistakes that he's made. And the question is, how then do these two brothers who are kind of typical of two paths of life, the self-righteous path and the profligate path, how do they live together in the same family? I think that's an extremely important question uh, that's very relevant to almost every aspect of our lives as Christians. Um, In terms of marriage, in terms of family, and especially in terms of, of church. Because God has rescued all of us from different places and different journeys and paths of life. Uh, Some of you can identify with a younger brother that you've done some bad things in your life. Uh, You've had some addictions, and and you're working through those. And there are other people in here who who may have grown up in great Christian homes and and never uh, been a part of that kind of lifestyle, who've lived a fairly moral life, who struggle with the self-righteous part of things. How is it that we can, that we can manage to stay together as a church family and, and live and love each other without killing each other? That's kind of, kind of the question. Um, because it is, it is, it is hard. Um, it's, it's hard in marriage, it's hard in family, and it's hard in a church. You know, many of us, um, we kind of go into marriage when we're young thinking that, wow, this is going to be easy. And then everybody's surprised when, hello, two sinner, sinful people who live together all the time. Now it's hard. And we're surprised. Um, I don't think we should be surprised. Our theology tells us we're, we're messed up, jacked up people, and you get together, and, you know, that's just, sparks are going to fly. And, and then, you know, young couples think that, hey, we're going to have kids. Everything's going to be blissful and wonderful. And then your kids grow up, and everything, for a while at least, turns horrible. And you're surprised to think, wow, this is, this is really messed up. I didn't expect this. And people coming to the church thinking the same thing. Wow, these are all Christian people, and I'm never going to be hurt. Hello? No relationships are easy. That's why everybody blows out of, not everybody, but some people blow out of relationships. So the question is, how does the younger brother and older brother in the same church, or you and I, so different from different walks of life at different points in the journey, how do we live and love each other as a family? That's, that's the question, because it is difficult. Um, it's easy to say those things intellectually, but boy, when you're hurt by somebody in a marriage or in your family or in a church... Then, it come, then, it, then it's brought to a whole new different level of experience, and you're wondering, can I stay in this place? Can I stay in this marriage? Can I, can, I, can I keep from, you know, shutting the door and locking it on my kid? Not letting them come back in the house. So it's a very real, potent question of how is it that we are to be family, one family. Now, it's important, I think, for us to recognize in our rather individualized and individualistic culture how important oneness is and us being one family is to the Lord. Now, this is spoken about a lot, and we talk about let's just be unified and so forth, but it is really important to the Lord. Um, We have a number of passages that just kind of tell us this. Ephesians 4 is one, and the whole book actually insists on it, that it's part of the main plan of God to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That in chapter 4, he insists that there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. That he is made out of two peoples, one people, one family, one holy temple. Oneness is so important to the Lord. It's the heart of what he's doing is forming and, and, and knitting together a family, 
Um, This is what Jesus prays for in John 17 when he says he prays that they, the church, would be one even as you and I are one. I mean, at the center of all reality is a really powerful little family. Actually, I should call it an enormous family. And that is the family of Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, who share the same divinity and yet enjoy and lavish love upon the uniqueness of each other's uh, differences. That's the glory of the Trinity that we celebrate and that the church has has believed in wholeheartedly for thousands of years. Um, And God, in essence, is joining us in that family through what he has done in Christ. Um, One could look at the prodigal story and a prodigal son and say that the father is going out to reunite his sons back to his love. So um, the whole issue of of us being a family, uh, despite its difficulties, is a central one. It's a core one. Um, To believe that one can be a Christian, or practice, I should say it this way, practice the Christian life outside of a commitment to the oneness of the church is a complete dissonance or disconnection uh, and out of sync with the very heart of God and the purpose of God. So in light of how important it is for us to live as one, In light of the fact that it's difficult because we're all so different, personalities, preferences, genders, backgrounds, uh, sin experience, family dynamics, how is it that we commit ourselves to this oneness despite all of the nagging differences that irritate us? That's the question. And I believe that Paul provides for us an, an answer because... Ephesians 1 through 3, of course, as we know, we went through it not too long ago, lays out this firm foundation of everything that God the Father in his infinite love has done to make us a family through the blood of his Son. That's chapters 1 through 3, the basic foundation of the family. Um, But in chapter 4, he goes on to give practical instruction as that, now here's how you guys are going to do this, all right? Um, And that text is, uh, and we're going to look at at verse 2 in particular, but here here it is, I'm going to read it for you. It says, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that's just a way of saying that here's how now you're supposed to walk and live out what I've already accomplished in chapters 1 through 3. Verse 2 then goes on to give specific instructions as to how we're supposed to relate to one another. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, what I think is interesting about this is that what he says here presupposes that it's going to be difficult. Um, humility or gentleness. The tendency would be for people to deal with one another harshly or sharply. Or, or patience implies that we are going to probably be impatient with each other. We're going to have to allow for time for God's spirit to work and for people to change. Or that statement, bearing with one another in love. Uh, I think another way of translating is that put up with each other. In love, it presupposes that it's hard. That it's hard to be in relationship with people who are different on every level. Um, Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I think the reason he wrote this is because we tend to do the opposite. And it's part of our fallen, um, sin-stained self to, to actually... Not be humble, but to relate to one another arrogantly or lack gentleness or be impatient. or Instead of bearing with one another, putting up with one another in love, we, we get tired of each other. We write each other off um, in terms of life and, and possibly leave or flee 
rather than um, having an eagerness to maintain the, the oneness of the body, we oftentimes divide it or fragment it or leave it. I mean, that's, that's, I think, probably a pretty true statement of how things, generally speaking, are in our time and culture with the church. Um, and he's telling us we're supposed to do the opposite. Now, I want to focus on the, the first of these, just one word. Eventually, uh, originally, I was going to do humility, gentleness, and patience, but I realized that the, the kind of the head word at the whole list is, is important enough just to talk about this morning, humility. And by the way, uh, for those who like to look back to the first century thinking, wow, they had it all together, we need to go back and be like the first century church. You read 1 Corinthians, you tell me how messed up that church was. Um, it, it, they had problems back then, just as we have today. The church of Ephesus he's writing to would have had a, a wide range of very messed up people. Uh, you would have had kosher Jews right alongside uh, converted pagans. You would have had um, uh, converted temple pr- prostitutes. Um, right alongside of a master, a slave, or a Roman citizen. So if we think it's hard in our time, it's no different than it was at that time, and that's why he writes these instructions. So first of these, this, this humility thing, is that when he goes to give instructions, how we're supposed to relate and be one family together, the first on the list is this thing of humility. Now, now let me just say, for the record, as my close friends will tell you, I am not a poster child for Humility. My dealing with my own arrogance is a bit like going to one of those arcades. And it, is it the um, squirrels or is it the um, groundhog? It's like you smash one and another one pops up in a different area. And that's kind of how my life has been. So I, I, I'm not coming to you as one who has mastered this. In fact, there's only one poster child of humility, and that is Jesus himself. Um, who left his divine realm, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant or a slave to help those who were his enemies. So if if you want to have an image or an example of what humility looks like, you have to keep your eyes on Jesus, not on a pastor or each other. All right? So he's... Uh, he, he, he is the poster child. And what I offer to you, I offer from the life of someone who has probably failed more than succeeded in living a life of humility. Nevertheless, um, I think my wife would tell you that I have grown by the grace of God, and I'm thankful that what God begins, he completes, and I trust that process. Um, so let's just kind of talk for a second here about this, this idea of humility. Um, if you were to look this up in the original, you would find that it's basically a combination of two words, of low-mindedness. Um, that that basically is what humility is. It's, it's, uh, it's keeping a low mind of oneself. And as Philippians here talks about, because he, um, he actually gives a, a more vivid description of what humility looks like when he says that you're to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, and all of those are self-centered words, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So it's a low-mindedness of oneself and a raising or elevating in your mind um, who another person is. And again, that's easier said than done because the people that you're supposed to elevate as more significant than yourself are the people who are screwed up just like you. So um, it's basically, that's what it means in terms of definition. Now, I'm going to tell you that for me, it's not hard to get my mind around the definition of it. A low-minded approach to other people, treating them more significant than myself. It's not hard, I don't think, to get your mind around the concept of it. For me, the bigger issue is what makes humility actually possible? Is it just that I, I tell myself, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble? Do I put my headphones in my ears with a looping MP3 player with a nice, soothing, therapeutic voice going, Dan, 
do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more important than yourself. Click. But in humility, count others as more important than yourself. Click. Humility, count others more important. Maybe I'll get it that way. Maybe we'll get it that way. And I, I just don't find that you get, get there by doing that. Um, how is it that we actually nurture a sense of humility in our lives that's genuine, that's not an act? Because what many Christians do, I, in my opinion, including myself at times, is we act humble. And oftentimes, because we want to be seen as humble, which is a form of arrogance. How is it that we can be humble from the inside out? And I don't think just talking to ourselves is the key. So, so what I want to do is kind of take you where I th- to the thing that I think nurtures a genuine sense of humility from the inside out, not just an act of humility. We don't want to act humble. We want to be humble. There's a huge difference in those two things. One's performance. One's real. How is it that we develop and nurture a genuine sense of humility in our lives? And I don't think it's just by, by talking to ourselves, be humble, be humble. And there is a distinctive root or source, I believe, of Christian humility that's different than every other form of humility in the world. Um, Buddhism, for example, um, it considers the virtue of humility as one of its ten great virtues. Um, you know, Kwai Chang King, that kind of stuff. Um, you read a book like From Good to Great by Jim Collins. He will tell you that one of the marks of some of the greatest business leaders is a self-effacing humility. And if you act this way or you are this way, then it will make you a better CEO. Um, so there is a, a worldly recognition that humility is a good thing. But I want to tell you that where humility comes from in the Christian life is altogether different. What nurtures, what engenders, what creates a genuine humility from the inside out, not just an act, um, is fundamentally Christian. Now, let me take you to kind of the two, think of this as two foundations that nurture a sense of humility. I'm trying to bring us to a point where we develop and nurture what really humbles rather than just tell you, be humble, Harkway, and start dealing with each other's stuff. Um, as I understand the life of Paul, and his statements of his own life, as well as what he says here in in Ephesians, it seems to me that the key to his humility uh, was that he saw his life through two simultaneous but different lenses. That is that the Apostle Paul saw himself as both a sinner and a saint. That is, he saw his life apart from Christ and in Christ. Those are the kind of the two lenses or the two foundation stones. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Um, these are kind of the basic building blocks and what nurtures a sense of humility if we spend our time here. Um, one is to s- seeing ourselves apart from Christ. That's interesting that I'm going to take you out of Ephesians here. That most of us know this, this, this statement by Paul. He's talking about himself when he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The Apostle Paul saying, uh, of all the sinners, I am foremost. Now that has troubled me at times and intrigued me at other times because he, I would have expected him to say I was. I was a sinner, the foremost sinner. I was the chief of sinners. But he doesn't. He puts it in a present tense and says, I am. 
He has a way of looking at himself where he can say in the present tense, I am the foremost of sinners. Now, how can he say that? How can he look at himself that way, especially when he says in other passages, like, um, like this is 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5, verse 17, where he says, in Christ he is a new creation. The old things in life have passed away, and there's new things that have come about. That he knows that, on the other hand, he's a saint. He's fully justified by grace. He has the righteousness of Jesus. So you have him saying, I am the sinner foremost, and on the other side, I am a new creation. So is he bipolar or schizophrenic, seeing himself one way one time and another way a different time? I don't think so. I think he saw his life through two distinctive lenses. And one of them is that I am a sinner foremost. Now, what does he mean by that? And one could say, okay, in answer to that question, maybe Paul just had a really acute awareness of his own fallen life. He just knew that at times he struggled with lying. uh, He struggled with what people thought of him. And that may indeed be the case, that he just had an acute awareness of his own sinfulness. Um, Or one can say, maybe he said this because he was a persecutor of the church, that he wasn't just hostile toward the church or or Christianity or Jesus. He was violently hostile to Jesus. So maybe it was his historical sin, what he used to be, that makes him say, I am chief of sinners. But, but then I, I would have to come back to the fact that he would have said, I was. But he doesn't. He says, I am. Which, in my mind, as I've wrestled through it, I believe that he sees himself in the present tense through the lens of where he would have been apart from Jesus. And he knew... He knew that the only thing he had, apart from Jesus, is nothing but the rotting garbage of his own self-righteous life and a slavery that he never wanted to go back to. I mean, I think it's worth noting that, that in the prodigal son story, Paul is the essential older brother. I mean, this is what he says himself, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had all the, all, the, all the stuff in the portfolio to say he was a great man. And yet we're told that he considered it, it considers it rubbish or food scraps, garbage. Because apart from Jesus, it means absolutely nothing. Apart from Jesus, it's nothing but simple slavery to a law, a list of regulations, a life of performance when you've never done enough and always insecure. So he knew it. And I believe in large part because he saw his life through this lens of recognizing who, who would I be apart from Jesus and, and to realize nothing. I'm deserving of nothing but the isolation of a cold, loveless hell. That's it. No matter how well you've lived, how reprehensible your life has been with all of its addictions and, and so forth, or how wonderful your life has been and how well you've lived, it's all scrap. I said scrap. Some of you guys. I've heard that word without the S more times up here than I've ever heard it in any other church. Um, not by me, but well, maybe once or twice. See, we all make mistakes, don't we? Have to deal with each other, you know? Um, and I, I really believe, and by the way, Ephesians, I think, also kind of fleshes this out too. Why does he keep reminding the Ephesians of people of who they used to be? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's an inter- indirect way of reminding them of who they would be apart from Jesus. And you forget that? You don't remember that? You don't keep yourself um, constantly glued to the fact that apart from Jesus, I'm nothing? And you, 
if you don't stay anchored in that lens, then, then you tend to rise up and then become judgmental of other people because you've made it farther down the road of the Christian life than other people. And you've forgotten who you were and who you would be without Jesus. And, and it, it's, as I said, it's easy to say that, hey, you need to look at yourself this way, but to believe it and let it sink in and to know that I, apart from Jesus, I really am hopeless. Insecure. Lost. Groping in the dark. No purpose. And you, you kind of dwell there and you realize, wow. And that creates a sense of genuine humility. Remembering who we were and who we would be apart from Jesus. Knowing that through this lens we see ourselves as as sinners, as the worst, apart from Jesus. I think that's what, kind of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer got, got to in his book, Life Together, uh, which we read as a congregation years ago, and this part always stuck with me, and it's a little bit different than what Paul's saying, but, um, but it gets at it. He says, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with, should be with, the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. My sin of necessity, um, is the worst, the most grievous, the most reprehensible. And we come to that place to recognize that, you know, throw all comparisons out, that my sin is the worst. And I see myself, and my sin is the most detestable. Then instead of judging each other, as you would have in the church, which destroys family, destroys marriage, and destroys uh, churches, There's a sense of compassionate sympathy that I walk in your shoes too. I walked in them. And apart from Jesus, I still would be walking in it. When we start, stop seeing other people without our own faces on them. If I I have family members that, that, that are still living not for the Lord, but to look at them and see my own face on them, that changes the way I see them. Because apart from Jesus, that's exactly where I'd be. You see how that, that's, that's one way of looking at ourselves that, that enables us to, to, to maintain a genuine sense of humility. That I relate to people unbelieving and believing alike as a, as a, as a fellow sinner. I like the way D.A. Carson puts it. He says, we're to relate to each other like uh, one beggar um, telling the other beggar where the food is. We're not different. We just came to realize that we're beggars and Jesus is the food. So that's, that's, I think, one kind of foundation stone of, of genuine humility is we keep being reminded, not in a way that sends us into a morbid pit of, of self-absorbed guilt, but, but in a sense that that's who I would be apart from Jesus. But then the other part of the lens, which we also need to spend more time on, is seeing ourselves in Jesus, in Christ, of seeing ourselves with the second lens, and you have to have both, is to see myself and for you to see yourself as I am a new creation. I am a new creature. That I have been fully accepted by God, not on the basis of any merit of my own, but on the merits of Jesus Christ. That I am loved by grace. I am justified by grace. I am righteous by grace. All of it in Christ. And Paul tries to like, 
like press this into the soul of the Ephesians church in the first three chapters, just telling them, he has chosen you in Christ. He has blessed you with all blessings. In Christ, you have an inheritance. In Christ, you have redemption. The forgiveness of sins in Christ. You have everything in Christ, in your relationship to him. You have everything. And to see ourselves also through that lens. Now, as I was writing this, I thought, that sounds so cliche, Dan. How else do you say that? Let me just tell you, you know, we've been talking as pastors how important, like, just being honest and, and without uh, pretense on the stage is. And so let me just tell you how this works in my life. Um, there's this phrase that I say to myself. Whenever I find myself struggling with my own arrogance, especially in comparison to other people, that's usually when it comes out. Um, there's this phrase to, that I say to myself, and it's this. It kind of gets at this idea. So I tell myself, I preach it myself, and I meditate on the fact, and I pray over it, and I say, Dan, you are who you are in Christ, no more, no less. That's what I say to myself. Dan, or let me make it first person, I am who I am in Jesus, no more, no less. No more, no less. So when I'm in a, um, a classroom, and this has happened on several occasions, you know, there's 20 other pastors gathered around some sage who's going to give us all kinds of wonderful wisdom. Um, sometimes I will find myself sizing others up and myself into the room. I know you do this too. might be in a different category, whether it's at a, a career level of people who do what you do, and you're like, okay, where's the pecking order here? You know, or find myself next to my pastor buddy looking over at the paper. He got to see what his grade was and see what mine is. I would never, I, well, I am admitting that I've done that before. Um, but there is a, a sizing up of one another that, that requires a, a sense of comparison of where do we fit in the room? Where did you go to school? Um, where are you located in terms of the church? How long have you been in ministry? And all of those things are, are kind of like little notches in the belt that can be in the belt. And it times when I find myself doing that is when I pull out the phrase and I pray and I think and I preach to myself, Dan, you are who you are in Christ, nothing less, nothing more. Who you are, the value of who you are is not established by what school I went to, who my wife is, where I live, where I go to church, whether you went to a prestigious university, whether your wife is, is um, well-known or not well-known, who you know, it's in Jesus, no more, no less. And something happens, and I'd love, love to tell you that preaching that to myself and praying over it works 100% of the time. It doesn't. But it does work. And I find myself... How, how else can I describe it but a sense of there's a relaxation of, ah, that's who I am. And when that becomes the basis of your value, that I see myself in Christ, no more, I mean, you can't add anything to who I already am, and no less, you can't subtract anything from who I already am. I am already a child of God. I'm already infinitely loved. I am secure 
And so is everybody who's a Christian. But to see yourself as that, no more, no less. Well, then something happens, you're able to relest, and then you're able to be humbly honest with yourself and with other people. You're not constantly trying to push your successes out there for people to see. You're not, you're not motivated to drop little names of who you know or what you've read so that people think you're smart because it doesn't matter anymore. On the other hand, it keeps you from having to hide your, your flaws because, again, I am no less, no more than what I am in Jesus. This is who I am right now. It allows one to be, how do I say this, comfortably honest. Honest with successes, too. Now, I can say that my wife, Deanna, is a great piano player. That wouldn't be a boast. That'd be a statement of truth. And I think she should be able to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great piano player. She took first in nationals years ago. It's not a boast for her to say that if she knows that who she is in Christ, no more, no less. And whether she won or didn't win doesn't define who she is. Christians have a hard time being honest about their successes. They practice false humility and lie. Well, I'm a terrible piano player. That's, that's not humility, that's lying. Some of you have talents. You have successes. You've been successful financially. You've been successful in business. You've been successful in your relationships, your marriage. Some of you have been married for decades. That's great. It's not wrong to say that or to celebrate that, provided that does not define your value. It's not your marriage. It's not your years of marriage or your, your failures in marriage. It's the fact that you are who you are in Jesus, no more, no less. That's the, that's the bedrock of humility to me. And when, in my worship of the Lord, I remember who I was apart from the Lord, lost, broken, headed to the wrong place, and I still would be that way if God didn't pursue me in his love. And at the same time, I am loved, I am a new creation, I am justified, I am freed because of Christ. Then you have a sense of humility. You're not trying to stand on your accomplishments. And I believe that's where humility is born and how it's nurtured as we keep going back to the gospel. That's why I said Christian humility is totally different than Buddhist humility or, or the humility that you find in a leadership book because it's developed, it's nurtured, it grows and deepens as we let the gospel truth of the fact that we were sinners, now saints, sink into the soul to the point where you believe it. And it frees us. Then, also looking at others that way too, if it helps me tremendously and it should help all of us if we recognize that we're supposed to see each other through that lens too, that my brothers that I see here and sisters, you are who you are in Christ, no more, no less. And to know that God sees you as his new creation, as his children, as those who are righteous, precious, and cherished, that is going to change the way I think about you. And it should change the way you think about me. If we allow ourselves to see life through these two lenses. Two lenses that are clearly a part of the gospel. So here's, here's kind of where it comes right down to this whole idea. That's what humility does. And that's I think why it puts it in the first of the list. Because without it, it's really hard to do well in marriage, in family, or in church. Because it is difficult. It is difficult to relate 
to imperfect people without being impatient, giving up on people. But if we're going to nurture that sense of humility necessary to, to not win the argument every time, to let go of hurts that you want to use to make another person feel perpetually guilty, humbling yourself to forgive, then it's going to come. The motive's going to come. We're going to arrive there, and it's going to deepen in us as we feast our hearts on the simple truths of what Christ has done for us. That is so humbling. And that's, that's, that's what makes it possible not to act humble, but to be humble. The way to grow is, once again, to put your eyes on Christ. What he's done to save us from sinner to saint. And that will, I believe, engender a sense and nourish a sense of genuine humility that frees you from that comparative living of always evaluating yourself based upon what other people are doing or how they're not doing. It frees us from the need to be judgmental if we see our lives through these two lenses and allow humility to bubble up to the surface of our lives. Let me ask you if you would... um, How do I want to close this? You know what? Let's, Let's do this. I want to ask you to do something we haven't done in a little while. Uh, the posture of humility is kneeling. And, um, and if you're able, I realize not everybody's knees go down that far, but if you would just for the next moment or so, just kneel with me um, on the floor and let's just ask God to impress us once again with Jesus and pray for a genuine sense of humility that we need to be family. Father, I confess, I confess that I have um, far too often thought too much of myself and as a result hurt other people. And I confess, Lord, on behalf of this church family that at times we have been impatient with each other, um, that we haven't been gentle, we've been harsh, that we've given up on friends, acquaintances, because they didn't live up to our expectations. And we weren't eager to preserve the unity of your spirit in the bond of peace. So Lord, we confess that that when it comes to humility, we fail. But we we do pray that you would give us um, a singular look, gaze, faith, belief in what Jesus has done for us and that really everything that we are is contained in our relationship with him. We want to live in the freedom of that light and we desire to live in the freedom of that light. And so so I ask that you would um, open our eyes again, create a sense of humility because of what you've done for us, that we are who we are in Jesus no more, no less. And help us to relate to one another that way, to not give up on each other, but always see the other as more, more significant because that's what Jesus did for us. So, Lord, we pray for your forgiveness and thank you for your grace. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Lost our sin, find